You're listening to the Faith Unpacked Podcast. Welcome back to the Faith Unpacked Podcast with Jamie and Jason. This is episode 186. And today, Jamie and I wanted to discuss the topic of the Trinity. First of all, what is the Trinity? What do we mean by that when we say we believe in the Trinity or that we are Trinitarians? What, what does that even mean? And, and secondly, why is this doctrine even important? Some people, Jamie, I've talked to a lot of people like this, actually, that feel like when we talk about, oh, I love the Trinity, or um, if we talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ, and we use words like propitiation, there's kind of an aversion among some Christians, not, 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 I'm not talking about non-believers, actual Christians, uh, to some theological terms. Sometimes it's just they, they think of theology as dry and kind of cold, and it's not it's not focused on just the love of God and and you know keep it simple um, that mindset. And yet, what what we have to encourage people to see is that anytime we say anything about Jesus or about God, anything we say is theology. We're we're saying something significant. We're we're not just saying that God exists. We're saying God is. Holy, God is loving. These are all theological ideas, theological concepts. And so when we come to the Trinity, we're using a word that, granted, is not found in the Bible. So some people just will, will bring that up. They'll, they'll mention, you know, why are we so fixated on defending the Trinity or talking about the Trinity when it's not even in the Bible, or the word is not in the Bible? And of course, the answer is if. A doctrine is clearly taught in Scripture, and it's not given an actual label in Scripture. Otherwise, we'd use that label, right? If it's not given a label in Scripture, then it only makes sense that we would use a man-made label, if you want to use that word, a, a, a traditional label that has been used throughout church history. It's not something that, you know, was just invented in the last couple centuries even it's it's long before us people have been using this term trinity um and and using that to describe the nature the being of god and and explain for us what it means to talk about the essence of god and so jamie i think just for starters for starters it's good to have a definition um so as we talk about the trinity Keep in mind, when you come across people who will flat out deny the Trinity, and now I'm talking about non-believers, people who say uh, that the Trinity is nonsensical or the Trinity is a made-up doctrine, man-made idea, I encourage people to remember that oftentimes there's just a misunderstanding going on. Because most people, when they say they don't believe in the Trinity— they, they don't believe in a, cons, a false version of the Trinity. They, what they actually are denying is something that the Bible doesn't even teach. And we did talk about Islam in our last episode. We talked about how the, the Quran basically denies 
a false version of the Trinity. It denies that there are three gods and that the three gods are the Father, the Son, and Mary. And, and, and we explain that, first of all, the Bible doesn't teach that. Christians have never taught that, not, not Orthodox Christians. And uh, I, I mean, it's unbiblical. We don't believe that. But what we are defending, what we hold to, is a triune understanding of God. And so here it is. It is that within the one being of God, there are three co-eternal and co-existent persons. Within the one being of God, there are three persons. And those persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's important to set out a clear definition because we could dance around what we're trying to say all day long. But if people don't hear it from the beginning, it's it can be confusing. Um, Jamie, what would you add just to the, the simple laying the groundwork for what we're talking about when we're using that word Trinity? Yeah, so I, I think it is a great point, Jason, that you know, one of these things that I, I'd say the vast majority of Christians, they go, well, I don't understand it, but I believe it because the Bible teaches it, right? That That's a pretty common thing, but we don't know what to do with it. So we just kind of put it in the closet, right? And we talk about Jesus, we talk about redemption, we talk about the gospel, we talk about all the other things that are just easier for us to understand. And I get that, right, to a point, because when you're asking the question, what, what is the Trinity? That answer only gets us so far, right? We know that there is only one God, like you said, because the Bible is very clear about this point, right? God is one God and he will not yield his glory to anybody else, right? Think of like Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 or 44, 6 or 45, 18 or Deuteronomy 6, 4 or 2 Samuel 7, 22, repeatedly making it very clear. This is God repeatedly stating, not only is he the only God, uh, but he will not countenance any other claiming to be God or claiming to be in his position, right? To have his authority, to have his, uh, one of these things, Jason, I, I comment to people all the time, is the one thing we do not do is we do not challenge the glory of God. And certainly, uh, to say there's another God is to challenge his glory. And I mean, you can try it if you want. Lots of people throughout scripture did try to challenge the glory of God. It didn't turn out well for them. So I wouldn't recommend it, but you could try it. Um, <clears throat> but that's that's the basic point, right? You can't get away from the fact that God in his own words describes himself as only one. There is only one. There always ever has only been one, right? Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 makes that very clear. There was no God before him. There is no God after him, right? He alone is eternal. He alone has always been God and there isn't any others. And in fact, no other salvation, but through him, uh, very clear. Yet at the same time, you have the reality of the father, in scripture, you've got the reality of the Son in scripture and even the Holy Spirit. I know for a lot of people, they view the Holy Spirit as a force of God and not God himself. And yet you come to like Acts chapter 5 and in the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, 
um, what do you find? The, the reason that they get punished um, is because they've lied to God. And how did they lie to God? They lied to the Holy Spirit, right? So very clearly <laughs> defined as God. And then you've got like, you know, Genesis 1, 27, uh, let us make man in our image. You have this plurality speaking to itself. Uh, and, you know, and, and so just the, this is only a tiny subset, right, of all that scripture argues in relationship to, to the nature and character of God. So while I don't understand it, I do recognize that the Bible clearly teaches it. Like Jason said, the word Trinity doesn't appear in Scripture, but the concept, it's actually one of the easiest biblical doctrines to defend because it's so replicit all throughout Scripture that you cannot get away from it, nor can you ignore it or deny it. I mean, like you said, Jason, there are Unitarian churches that uh, believe that God um, God is only one, and he is not Trinitarian, and he never was Trinitarian. There is no other uh, aspects to his nature and character. And even some very famous people throughout American history have fallen into this viewpoint. Um, uh, John Adams, for example, he was a Unitarian. He went to a Unitarian church. Now, I still, I, I think he did understand the gospel. I do believe he was legitimately saved, but he never did fully grasp uh, the, t the teaching of God presented in scripture. And there have been many others as well. And certainly, in fact, Jason, just not far from my house is a Unitarian church that, that teaches um, this same doctrine. There, there is only one God. And then there's, of course, more um, like uh, Judeo-leaning Christians. These are not actual blood Israel, but people that like to observe all of the uh, Jewish practices and holidays and and really um, kind of mix. It's kind of a mix of uh, Judaism with Christianity in kind of this strange. A lot of those folks have a lot of trouble with the Trinity as well. And I, I think, Jason, the, the best way to sort of maybe begin to build out this picture is to really recognize that the Trinity has profound effect on everything and, you know, go back to the episode we just did last week, uh, episode um, 185, where we talked about one of the aspects of this, and, and that's the Trinity's um, impact on the gospel, right? If God is not Trinitarian, then the gospel actually falls apart. And one of my favorite quotes, Jason, is from uh, a, a English theologian named Michael Reeves, and he says um, in his book, Delighting, Delighting in the Trinity, he says, for strip down God and you make him lean, you must strip down the gospel uh, or, or you must strip down his salvation and make it mean. Instead of a life bursting with love, joy and fellowship, all you are left with is the watery gruel of religion. Instead of a loving father, a distant potentate. Instead of fellowship, a contract, no security in the beloved son, no heart change, no joy in God could that spirit bring. Far, far from theological clutter, God being father, son, and spirit is just what makes the Christian life beautiful. And I think that really captures well what we're trying to argue, which is to say, actually, that God being Trinity has a profound effect on every single aspect of the nature and character of God. So it's not just the gospel 
right? But it's how we get to interact with God. It's how God interacts in the world. It's how God interacts in history. It's the whole story of humanity is dramatically different if you strip away this essential doctrine about the character and nature of God. And in the end, uh, you lose any personal relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love how Michael Reeves explains that because really it, it is like without the Trinity, we don't have the God of the Bible. And, and and some people will sort of balk at that and think like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Do we see the Trinity in the Old Testament, for example? And and my response is there is there are certainly strong impressions, strong um implicit affirmations of the trinity in the old testament beginning with chapter one actually where you know god says let us let us make man in our image well right away we have this is a try well we don't know it's try i guess but we know there are there's a usness there's a multiplicity of persons in the speaker and and that you know to the ancient jews they might have scratch their heads over that or or come up with different ideas about you know is this the plural of majesty or what but but if you have the doctrine of the trinity this makes sense and this is suddenly a teaching full of color and life and vigor because now we see that we have been created to reflect a relational god a god who's intrinsically love that's why we can say god is love not god created us so he loves us but god is love that's who he is in his very essence he is a loving god because there is love shared between the persons of the trinity and and you know to kind of clear up some confusions i think a lot of people uh who want to attack the doctrine of the trinity many people mock it i've talked to people who um who basically say this is this is where Christians run into a big math problem. You know, one does not equal three, three does not equal one, things like that. And, and the big thing they're, they're missing is we are not saying there are, there is one being that is God. And there's also three beings that, it, that are God. We're not saying that Christians have never, Orthodox Christians have never said that. And, and we're also not saying that the father is the son who is the spirit. You know this. This is a. This has actually been around for a long time. Uh, Sabellianism, or today maybe more commonly known as modalism. Um, I've I've heard honestly. I've heard theologians who would identify as Orthodox Christians. They would say they are Christians, and they will use analogies of the Trinity. Um, that basically when you look at, when you look at it, you recognize this is actually modalism they're describing, which is the idea that really the father is the son in some sense, and the son is the spirit. And, and that's a, that's, that's just not taught in the Bible there. That would not make sense. And, And for those who would say, oh, well, the Trinity doesn't make sense because why would God, you know, with Jesus, why would God be praying to God? Well, they have to see that this is a personal relationship between the persons of the one being that is God. So it doesn't, it, it's not something where there's a math problem. It's that if you're, if you're counting for persons, 
persons, there's three. There's only three, and there are have always only been three. There only will ever be three. If you're counting essences or beings, then there is only one. And and you know, a lot of people say, but that doesn't make any sense. I'm a human being and I'm only one person. Yeah, <laughs> but you are a human being, which means you you are not going to be in the same class as God. And honestly, Jamie, as I as I think about this, one of probably the biggest reasons people not not just struggle with the Trinity, we all struggle to grasp it, but I'm talking about people struggling to the point of saying, I deny it. I think that what happens is people have such a hard time believing that God is in a class of his own, that, that God is not just a bigger, more powerful version of us, but that he is totally unique. I mean, that's what holy means. He is separate. He is he is alone God. And, and in fact, in Isaiah, God says, to whom will you compare me? In other words, you're looking around for all these analogies in your earthbound perspectives and saying, oh, God is like this or God is like that. In reality, you can't because God is just unique. You can't say he's like that or like this. You can't compare him to something and say he's exactly like this. Now, certainly you can use illustrations to compare his love to the love of a father or his tender care to the tender care of a mother or something along those lines. But when we're talking about the nature of God and who God is, you can't just point to something in the created order and say, this is what God is like, because that's idolatry. In fact, that, that's what all the pagans throughout history have done, in essence, is they've taken something from nature and said, this is what God is like. This represents God. And, and, and the God of the Bible says, you can't do that. You in other parts, he says, uh, you have turned things upside down, thinking that you can, uh, you know, you can you can call the the potter the clay, or 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 pretend that the 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 clay is like the potter. No, the the potter is distinct from the clay. He's the creator. We are created, and so all of this, as you said, Jamie, is so necessary for understanding salvation. And, and frankly, I don't think anyone is going to accept the doctrine of the Trinity without salvation. And really, maybe we should say that up front at the beginning, <laughs> but this is the most important thing that you come into a saving relationship with this God, trusting in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in him and his payment on the cross, then this is the point at which the miracle of salvation is the point at which God opens our hearts to accept something that we can't fully understand. And, and even in the gospel itself, we have the Father sending the Son. Jesus repeatedly said, I, am, I have come to do the will of my Father. And then in the upper room discourse, he tells his disciples, I am going to send the Spirit. And and the Father will will send the Helper. So all of this coordinates together, and we can't have the the what we call redemption in Christ. We can't have that unless God is triune. Yeah, it's absolutely true, uh, Jason. Like again, go back to our episode last week if you didn't listen to that, um, because one of the things we talk about in there is the 
essential nature of the Trinity for the gospel, right? If you take away the Trinity, then the the gospel of Christianity would be a lot like the gospel of Islam, which is a God who isn't actually loving, isn't hasn't eternally been a father, isn't pouring out his love and life-giving nature. You know, he's a God who is alone and selfish and self-centered. And maybe he approves of those who uh, worship him or delight him or um, maybe, right? But there's no guarantee of that. And you literally have to die and find out if you can go to heaven or you can go to hell. There's no assurity. There's no security. There's no actual relationship right? A, a, a God who can only be worshipped, not a God who can have, you can have actual relationship with. Those are two wildly different things, right? You look at the closeness of this God, Yahweh. Um, Romans 8 is a great example of that, right? We are, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are invited into adoption as a son. Like you get to have familial relationship with God. How cool is that? Now, that's not to say you don't become God. Uh, You don't become a demigod or get God-like power or anything like that. But it is to say you get invited to the dinner table, right? You You get to have real meaningful relationship with God. And that is something so much greater than just this, oh, I have a God that I worship and I am afraid of because, you know, if I don't perfectly please him, then I go to hell. That's a completely different God. And honestly, that's a horrible God. Like that's, that's a terrible prospect. And that's what you're left with when you remove the, the trini- Trinitarian nature of God. But you can't though. That, that's the thing is it's not just the gospel right? Everything about God is absolutely dependent on his Trinitarian nature. I mean, think about this. So let's go back to that example of modalism. If God is the Father, the Son, or the Spirit at any given time, right? He's wearing his Jesus costume right now. Um, Then what happens when he dies? And that's a serious thing to think about because what else are we told that God does. Uh, God is the, the very means, the sustenance of life, right? Think of uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 begins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Oh, that's a problem, right? If God is not Trinitarian and Jesus dies and God is wearing the Jesus costume, so God dies, what happens to creation? It completely comes apart, right? The, the very sustaining nature, the, the literal ruach of God for creation. This, I mean, we, we know this in science as um, we call it gravity, right? Gravity is this thing that holds the universe together 
And what is gravity? Well, we don't know, right? We know what gravity does. We don't know what gravity is. And it's like, dude, scripture told us right here, literally, it is the very presence of God that holds creation together. And so if, if Unitarian exclusively by himself, God wearing the Jesus costume dies, then the entire universe comes apart. In fact, the entire makeup of our body comes apart. Like all of these random atoms and molecules and things that bind together and make up our body would literally just cease to exist. It would fall apart. We'd literally just instantly disintegrate as would creation, as would the universe, as would the cosmos. Like sounds pretty serious. And all of that... (laughs) Just because you took away God's nature and character revealed in Scripture. Um, now, <clears throat> Jason, I think it's fair to say that did any of us fully understand it? No. I mean, you, you made this point earlier, right? We can't compare ourselves to God. We God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. The book of Isaiah tells us that that God's ability to understand is so much greater than ours. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the way this is described in, in theological terms is we say God is ontologically transcendent, right? In his nature above, that, that's the reality of it. And, and the truth is, Jason, that we wouldn't know much of anything about God. I mean, we would have general revelation of God, right? Which is like, Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the earth proclaims his goodness. And day after day and night after night, it pours forth speech. Yet there are no words. Their voice is not heard, but their message goes out to the world. And what's the message, right? There is a creator. There's a God. Like God brought all of this order and design and beauty into reality right? It wasn't just the absence of time, space, and matter collided with the absence of time, space, and matter and created all time, space, and matter. That makes no sense. Absolutely makes no sense. Even Doppler theory itself, which is is the understanding that light is ever expanding in the universe, you reverse that, then you get back to one central point when light came into creation. And we know this from Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Boom! There it was, right? There's Doppler theory in play, Uh All of that general revelation is there to show us that God exists, but it doesn't help us know God that much, right? It doesn't help us see who he is and what his nature is like, and can we come close in relationship to him, right? Or do we have to stand off and worship him from afar? Uh, What is he like? And to even understand that, he had to reveal it to us. God is his character, his nature is so ontologically uh, transcendent that God literally had to reveal it to us. And when you realize that, it definitely changes the paradigm of like, oh, I get to determine what God is like. It's like, no, in fact, not only do I not get to determine it, but I am so finite that God has to literally even tell me I can't figure it out on my own. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and this is this is the big part of it is we only would come up with this concept of God as Trinity if it was revealed to us. This isn't something that people naturally come up with. You know, we, if it makes so little sense to the natural mind, one being three persons, then why do you think that the church came up with that? The church did not come up with that. God God revealed it. And, you know, a passage that I like to take people to, and this could be my Unitarian friend, or it could be a Jehovah's Witness at my door, or it could be uh, a Muslim who's just trying to figure out why Christians believe the Trinity. I take them to John 1. That's one of my favorite places because it's just so clear. Because once you look at Jesus and who he is, the Trinity has to be true. And John 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I'll stop there, but it's really important for people to see this, that the Word, the the Greek word is logos, the Word that is being described here has to be talking about Christ. It cannot be talking about somebody else because in verse 14 it says, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. But it says at the very first line, in the beginning was the word. Now it's it's so important for people to see this that our word was, it, it's it's kind of just a simple, you know, was is kind of bland. We use that for a lot of things. But in Greek, it's a very specific word that is not used ever in this kind of context. It's never used to speak of something coming into being. It's always used to speak of something that already was, already existed. It's the word ain, ain halaga. So in other words, in the beginning, the word already was. You go back as far as you can to the very beginning, hey, the word's already there. He already exists. So we're talking about an eternal word being described here. And not only that, but it goes on to say, and the word was with God. So we're talking about an eternal word that is in some sense in relationship with God. This is not something that you can't say the angels were eternally with God. This is not something where you can say uh, any any uh, thing in nature was eternally with. This is a unique being, and and you could say, well, this sounds like we're talking about two gods. But then note what the next phrase is: "And the Word was God." So right before that, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And and this is a this is a verse that well, I'll tell you. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses will say that they'll in their uh, New World Translation, they translated as, and the word was a God. And their whole reasoning behind it is that there is no article in front of the word theos. It doesn't say um, the word was the God. So therefore, it should be the word was a God. Now, the big problem with that, and this is something, it's not just my idea. It's not just a handful of Greek scholars. Literally every Greek scholar if, if they are a Greek scholar, if they are a Greek scholar of Koine Greek, they know that when you have an article in front of the predicate nominative, 
then you are equating the two things. You're saying, so say there was an article in front of that word God, if it was, if it was saying, uh, you know, the God and the, the word was the God, that would be equating the two. That would be saying everything that the word is, God is, everything that God is, the word is, and then you would be, you would be leaving no room for talking about the Father and the Holy Spirit because you'd be saying, basically, only the word was God. But that is not, John intentionally left out the article because he didn't want us to make that mistake. He didn't teach modalism. He didn't teach uh, Sabellianism. He, he taught that the word, who is in one sense distinct from the Father because he is with God, is also himself fully God. The word was God. So again, and then he reiterates this, he was in the beginning with God. He was already there with the Father. But yet, verse 3, all things were made through him. And just like you talked about in Hebrews, he holds all things together. He created all things. So we can't be talking about someone who is less than God. John used every Greek function in the, the language to explain this rightly to us, that the word, while distinct from the Father, who is God, and, and he's also distinct from the Spirit, which is taught elsewhere, he also was, in fact, fully divine. That's, that's inescapable in the original Greek, and that's what it's being taught here. The word who was with God was God himself. And, and honestly, just to give a little bit more clarity to this, the Jehovah's Witnesses, we know that they have a bias because they teach that Jesus is also the, the Archangel Michael, that he was a created being. So they say he was a God in the sense that he was a heavenly being, a lowercase God created by the, the ultimate God, Jehovah. But here's why I know there's a bias going on, because that same principle of saying uh, if they were consistent, and consistency is really important. If we're not consistent with our interpretation, then we know there's something wrong. They would have to say in other places in the same chapter that there should be an article, like where it says um, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Well, they would say, yeah, this is talking about obviously God. This is talking about Yahweh, or they'd say Jehovah. But if they were consistent, they would have to say there was a man sent from a God whose name was John. They don't do that. Their New World Translation does not do that. In other places, it's the same thing. Uh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In none of those places did they translate it as a God. And so we just know there is some incredible bias going on that's forcing them to interpret John 1 1 in a in a not just a unique way but in a very bad way a very false way because it's the whole goal is we can't let this uh we can't let the word be fully divine we can't let him be called God and that is exactly what John did again this he wrote it in the only way the only way possible in the original Greek and the way he did was to say that the Father and the Son are distinct, but both 
fully God, eternally God. He did it in the only way that that's possible. So, Jamie, wrapping up, this is just something that every Christian can just know that this is taught in Scripture. We only looked at really a, a few passages, but this is something we can have confidence in. It's what the Word of God teaches. It's what God has revealed. And it's because of this that we can have confidence that God, in his very essence, is love. And that he, when he worked out his plan of redemption from eternity, it was a triune redemption plan. That means that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity were involved. And because of that, we can run to the, we can run to the Christ of the Trinity. We can be filled with the Spirit and we can be guided by the Father. And, and all of this is implications for the Christian life are enormous because that means we can look to each person of the Trinity as fully divine. We can worship Jesus as fully God and know that when the Spirit of God fills us, God himself is filling us and we are his temple as the Bible teaches. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Unpacked podcast. We're so thankful for your time. We hope and pray that these encourage your faith and walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can find them on our website at faithunpacked.com. We'd also invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting site. If you have any questions, feel free to hit us up on social media, or you can send us an email at faithunpacked at gmail.com. And we invite you back next time as we continue to unpack our faith together.